0: Welcome to Cross Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can follow me on Twitter at XBorderTax. This week, we're in PwC's Washington, D.C. podcast studio also known as my office, where I'm excited to be joined by PwC International Tax Services partner and value chain transformation leader, Alex Velashko. I'm also joined by Marco Fiacadori. That's right. How'd I do? Very well. Very well. All right. Marco is a partner in our transfer pricing practice. Alex and Marco, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really excited to talk about this reg package, which we have waited a long time for. But before we start, very important question here. Is it FDII? Is it FITI? Is it FODI? Marco, I'll let you start.
1: Um, all of the above. Um, we'll get somewhere hopefully soon so that people refer to the same things. And what, same which, what are you betting on? What are you voting so for? I, I think FITI will probably go through right more, more successfully. You know, People need, need a way to, to get quicker, quickly to
0: the, to the bottom, right? I'm a FIti guy myself. Alex, where are you? I think if I'm more in
2: a formal setting, like in a client meeting, I might say FDI. with friends or in the more laid-back setting,
0: I say FDII. I like it. Yeah. I, I like the, the, the formal and for the informal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very nice. All right. Well, maybe for our audience that isn't quite as comfortable with the acronym for this is Foreign-Derived Intangible Income. This was a provision that was put in place to encourage the intangibles to stay in the U.S., before we dive into some of the regulations and some of the nuances of Section 250, Alex, can you just provide a, a general overview of, of the statute? And I, I touched on the policy, but just a little bit more detail about what Section 250 does and really a, a major change in how the U.S. taxes intangibles and in certain streams of income.
2: Yeah, the the mechanics of uh, foreign-derived intangible income provision, FDI, of FITI, as we're talking about here, is uh, governed by the Internal Revenue Code Section 250. It's the same section that gives 50% deduction for guilty inclusion, same mechanics. Which um, we've talked
0: a lot about here on the podcast so far. So. Exactly, yep. yeah.
2: And so the... The basic mechanics is that Section 250 provides a deduction equal to 50% of foreign-derived intangible income. What is foreign-derived intangible income? It's basically uh, deemed intangible income multiplied by a fraction, and the numerator of the fraction is foreign-derived deduction-eligible income, and the denominator is total deduction-eligible income. And the, the rules spell out each of those acronyms and what that means, but, you know, Generically speaking, the the denominator of that fraction is the taxable income on the U.S. tax return with certain addbacks for guilty support of income, dividends received from foreign corporations, foreign branch income, and then the der- uh, foreign derived deduction eligible income is what we'll unpack here in a minute. You know, there are certain specific types of income derived from services or property transactions mm-hmm. that may, and the rules and the proposed regulations get into a lot of detail on how to determine those.
0: Yeah, so do you want to unpack that a little bit, Marco, as far as the, yeah. the types of income? So in terms of income, it
1: you know, broadly speaking, it's trying to address export. And export here means something very specific with respect to what the U.S. Treasury is now proposing regulations on. Export could be of, you know, tangible property, intangible property, or services. Now, by export, I mean something that refers to effectively some form of uh, use or consumption, disposition, you know, happening outside of the US. Now, because supply chain is very complex, uh, that may have an obvious answer when you have consumers directed sales, for example, but you have more complex issues when it's an intermediate product, when you, the services are potentially provided to, you know, a business where that business uses that services in various locations, including the U.S., as well as intangible property, which could be at that point already commercializable or in process, and ultimately the commercial use could be outside of the U.S. or within the U.S. So it creates some form of questions around the contours, the perimeters of where exports is really, truly non-domestic from a U.S. standpoint. And the rules are sort of, you know, it's a good attempt to try to put some, some framework around it, knowing that the statute language is fairly broad, and, you know, although they want to provide a benefit, of course, they, they also are aware of uh, creating too much um, leverage in, in accessing this 37.5% statutory deduction on what would be ultimately considered FDI or FDI.
0: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that 375 deduction, because the, the statute, I think, was intended to operate, and this actually goes back... I don't know, almost 10 years to a Chairman Camp proposal with a, the carrot and stick approach, which it has sometimes been referred to with respect to offshoring of intangibles. And yep. you're absolutely right that this isn't just intangibles, it's services, it's product as well. But I think from a big picture perspective, at least the way I, I think about it was that there is this, you know, what what was referred to at least in the conference report is this minimum tax concept, which is guilty, which says that you know if you're not paying at least a blended rate of thirteen point one two five percent overseas, that you will then have some residual U.S. tax. And we spent a lot of time talking about expense apportionment and QBI and all that stuff with respect to guilty, but. From an FDII perspective, the idea was, well, if you leave those intangibles or even those property transaction services transactions back in the U.S., the concept was they wanted to be able to have the similar favorable tax rate and not incentivize U.S. companies or U.S. taxpayers from exporting those property transactions, intangible service transactions. And the mechanism by which they did that is under the same code section, Alex, which you referred to, which is Section 250. But the way they did it from a U.S. perspective is... That they said, well, 37 instead of guilty, which has a haircut as a result of the foreign tax credits, because there's no haircut with respect to foreign tax credits in the U.S., it's 37.5% deduction. So the concept being that the income that is eligible for FDII is effectively subject to tax in the U.S. at 13.125%, so that there can be some parity between whether it's earned in the US or whether it's earned offshore and then similarly from a guilty you also have to look at your US depreciable tangible assets and assume a return like we have to do from a guilty perspective for purposes of determining your your FDI your FDII We've also I've heard people mention and have read that arguably that disincentivizes intangible or tangible property investment because it otherwise potentially reduces your ability to be able to take your, your FDI deduction. And
2: there's a lot of those policy questions. I mean obviously like the big picture of the policy is sort of obvious. You know, the, the intent of the this particular carrot, the FDI of FITI, you know, is really a mechanism to Counterbalance will provide people with some incentive to either keep or move economic value drivers onshore into the U.S. But like with anything else, there's numerous questions as we kind of seeing, the uh, you know, the regulations being issued, finalized, about whether these policy actually, you know having desired effect, and there's numerous practical questions about what behaviors they yeah. drive, et cetera.
1: Yeah, and you know it's portable income in some sense, right? The, the, the acronym of intangible here is really any excess return over and above the Q by 10%, right? So it's portable income that could be through intercompany you know, arrangements or some form of structuring. To some extent, shifted now with the economic substance or a number of things, but the, the idea there is to really focus on parity. The thirteen and an eight percent being the threshold, at least you know on paper. Right. Um, yeah,
0: and I might argue how portable is that? It's really just exactly. to, to your point. It's just anything in excess of return uh, on on your depreciable yeah. tangible asset base. Yeah,
1: but then when you you know bring this concept into the regs and into the actual business reality, right? So that that portable means something specific, right? It could be income earned through transportation services. It could be income earned through sales of widgets. It could be income earned by licensing a particular IP. So it it creates a number of specific questions and potential risk and opportunities around characterization and proper structuring and proper documentation we'll see sort of around what really gives you and gives rise to that benefit and how how sustainable and how important is that benefit for for the group or for the for the domestic corporation that has you know that has a carry in into the tax department for for you know running the analysis you know being being able to prepare the, the so sort of defining for the tax return.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that because th- this th- that, I think, is one of the really important things that came out of the proposed reg. So a few weeks ago, we finally got the proposed regs on the foreign-derived intangible income. And we, have, we did a tax, I think both of you guys, we did a tax readiness series. So we've got a bunch of stuff that's out there. If you're interested in some of the detailed mechanics of those regs, obviously, we don't have time to get into that on today's podcast. But Maybe Alex will start with you. Just some some highlights or or lowlights, whichever your perspective might be with respect to the the proposed regs.
2: Yeah, I'll run through a handful, and then we can maybe spend a little bit of time unpacking certain types of income and what makes it eligible or not, you know, right. under the proposed rules. But maybe some some highlights are, you know, big picture. I kind of think of it as three main requirements to determine whether something is eligible for FDI benefit or not. One is whether a sale or service, you know, is foreign derived under specific rules that are prescribed in the regulations. Number two, whether the taxpayer knows or has a reason to know whether a particular product is destined or service or an intangible is used. And this is a bit of a novel concept. There's a lot of questions about, like, you know, how do you actually know or you know, what makes one believe they have a reason to know, certainly in the context of third-party transactions. There's a lot of information Yeah, services
0: points. tend to seem to be easy because you know generally where mm-hmm. your people are, are doing those things, but then property transactions that wind Even through Even with services, Like
2: we have a couple of examples. Even with services, you get into these like really strange questions. Yeah. About, but so, so, so one is whether, you know, a service or a, um, a sale of, of property is eligible under specified rules, whether a taxpayer has reason to know, knows or has the reason to know, where that product or service is used, and third, whether very specified you know documentation and administrative requirements have been met, and the rules spell out a lot of those you know documentation and administrative requirements the The rules address in in very you know significant detail you can tell there was a lot of thought put in this uh, by the government and trying to address with a lot of specificity just basic computational and definitional mm-hmm. uh, questions around you know how the income is determined, how, you know, QBI is determined, you know, for this purpose, QBI is determined very similar to how it is determined for guilty, not a big surprise. Mm-hmm. There's a specified anti rule that tries to prevent taxpayers from taking advantage of, you know, the, the, the computational effect of QBI and moving it around between entities in a group or in structured arrangements. Yep. The rules speak about treatment of partnership for purpose of QBI, basically saying, Partnership is an aggregate, so it's not an entity. You look through the partnership and its, you know, activities and assets, but partnership is considered a person for purposes of determining whether a sale or a service is to a foreign person or a related person, which is important. Mm-hmm. The the rules then, you know, specify what what you know specific services or income from sales is FDI eligible. They helpfully clarify that income from Section 37 inclusions is FDI eligible. The rules address some specific, uh, more industry unique situations, like where a sale is made to a U.S. government in mm-hmm. the context of a foreign military sale. So there's a lot of very specific, very helpful clarifications throughout the uh, the rules, and then we get into the actual, you know, definitions of. You know, property transactions and services transactions, and this is where the treasury—you uh, can tell—they they've taken a very nuanced, very thoughtful approach to try to take the statute, which Marco, as you said, is fairly broad, and try to sort of funnel it down and try to address, you know, what they thought was specific kind of business business fact patterns.
1: Yeah, and you know, again, high level, the way that it was done was to identify particular items, whether, you know, certain types of property or certain types of services and carve specific types mm-hmm. and indicate how to do it in a particular manner and then create essentially a residual category, which is, you know, general services or a general property that, you know, in effect leaves uh, open a number of questions. And I think it's where most of the issues are now popping up with respect to how to really get comfortable and how to, to substantiate the foreign use aspect of it. And, in, you know, the other thing that were it was particularly helpful, I think it clarified the mechanics of, of the calculations, mm. you know, the, the five-step rules, you know. Th- there are a number of things that were really raising fundamental questions in the algebra of, of, of running these calculations that were very nicely addressed, I, th- I thought.
0: Yeah, specifically, the, the it was unclear exactly how you did the, section, the NOL deduction, the 163J, and then section 250. And there was just circularity. And I know as we were building our models, trying to figure out which one comes first, and now we've got a relatively clear, very clear clear. five-step process as far as how how that works. I say that just because I haven't individually been through one of those computations yet. Uh, It seemed like it was clear in the regs. And then I think, as we all know from going through this exercise of the last 15 months, that... Once you actually start diving into some some fact patterns, issues tend to pop up. But it seemed that they, you know, did a, a, a very good job at trying to create a, you know, ordering of events. So maybe we dive into, maybe we start with some property transactions. Sure. Uh, I don't know if you want to maybe give uh, some examples or, you know, what, what are some of the things that you guys are kind of seeing in practice yeah, and, so, uh, you know, so for taxpayers? There
1: is a big difference between property and services. And in fact, there is even a test on predominance of, you know, of character depending on whether multiple items are, are included in the transaction. And I think the reason is because ultimately working backward, the evidence that the government is trying to get for the foreign use is very different depending on whether... It's property and it could be tangible property intangible property versus services
0: so yeah just to interrupt you just to make sure that everybody understands um, sorry Marco is that the idea is is that that amount of, of the certain types of income that is are eligible for for this deduction they wanted to make sure the Congress wanted to make sure that it's only those that are being that have foreign use. Yes. And that and seems like, okay, well that are they? Is it used offshore or not? Right. And obviously that is much more complicated than what it would, what it would seem. And so from a property perspective, is that property being used and tangible, is it being used or the services being used or performed outside? Yeah. And so that's kind of the, the fundamental question that the regs are trying to that's answer. That's
1: right. So in general property, so general property is a residual category. It's, uh, there's intangible property, which has a specific definition in the code. And then there are commodities and derivatives that are sort of carved out as well. general property is de facto you know tangible property in, in for our purposes for many of the businesses and that of course relates to ultimately the the challenge in proving out that it's not coming back in the u s at one point
2: Yeah, so for, so for general for general property sales um, to determine that the income from that sale is FDI eligible, you have to first establish a sale is to a foreign person that's the first requirement Yep. and there are very specific documentation requirements how you yep. actually establish that as a foreign person and then the second prong is that the property is sold you know for use outside the u.s. and the rule basically says the property has to be physically it has to be either sold to a third party outside the u.s. for use outside the u.s. or physically impacted outside the u.s. and cannot otherwise then be round-tripped and subject to US domestic use within three years. Yep. Okay. That's the basic rule. And so you immediately have questions like, so if I'm selling property to a a foreign person that is a third party an unrelated, you know, customer, then I have to somehow satisfy myself and the Treasury that within three years that property did not somehow make it, you know, so in the third party context, here's one example of just a lot of practical questions about record keeping and access to books and records and the regulations have examples where certain information is available just by reference to like public financial statements but like we all know a lot of times that level of detail is just That's, not disclosed yeah, and in public at, So certainly not a lot.
1: transactional level that we are expecting here to
2: yeah so i expect there'll be a lot of comments just on or mm-hmm. questions about like you know how to, how to apply that, that yeah and
1: of. and there is a very dramatic effect in lacking documentation here right so it, it seems pretty clear at least in the f- current form that if you lack documentation you are pretty much disallowed that benefit so documentation will become in practice the real action item for you know the filing of you know, of, you know yep. tax returns
0: yeah, one of the questions just on that property uh, example that that you gave, Alex, is what happens when it's component parts? Like if you're selling a piece to somebody else and then they use that piece in that business and then imagine that goes to some other business and it's used in another component and then ultimately it comes back to the U.S. I mean, how are companies supposed to to understand and and determine where that ultimate destination is?
2: Yeah, the rules – kind of sort of import some of the concept from support F rules, from foreign-based company sales rules. But curiously, they don't just import them by reference to those rules. They use kind of slightly different words about component manufacturing or transformation of property. Um, So I think one of the questions that I know the companies have been raising is, is there a particular reason why we don't just specifically look to the, you know, well-established rules on the support F income and all the case law that goes with it to determine whether something was, quote-unquote, manufactured or sub- substantially impacted outside the U.S. Or for this it, purpose.
1: You know, they, they have a test to establish whether it's <coughs> a component by looking at fair market value, percentages. and So, so it, it gets mechanical in some sense, but it's always very factual and subject yeah, to determination. Yep. Yep. Subject to determination that it typically depends on economic analysis or some form of, substantiation that it's quantitative right as well as you know factual.
2: Yeah. and then for and then there, there, there's special rules for related party general property yep. sales which which are very different there the rule just looks at you know to the extent the sale occurred to a foreign related party whether that foreign party sells that property to an unrelated foreign person mm-hmm. and if they don't then that sale is not eligible and if that sale did not occur by the time the tax return had filed then you cannot take the benefit of the deduction you can go back and amend the tax return if it later turned out that the sale eventually was made to a third party but there's no so, so think of a common situation where a u.s entity may make a component part you know sells it to a foreign related manufacturing entity in mexico maybe where it's further transformed into something else and you have a lot of this in certain industries you know automotive industrial products pharmaceuticals where you have sort of fragmented supply chains and then that component make make itself back into the u.s maybe it's finished or further manufactured the initial sale is not eligible because the product eventually made its way back to the u.s So there's a lot of questions around, you know, was this really... And
1: also timing becomes relevant, right, to to this point. There could be mismatch, and there are even, you know, rules in the proposed regs that allow you to go back and amend returns if there is a mismatch between the evidence you have available at the time of the filing versus the evidence that will become available after the filing. For example, it's very common to have holding inventory through, you know, related party transactions that goes beyond... You know the time that you would be otherwise able to to use as evidence that it eventually went to a third party outside of the U.S. Um, and you are effectively withholding that benefit for for as long as you have that evidence back and potentially have to amend the return. So a number of complexities. This goes back to the incentives question. I think you know it's it's really at the end of the day um, seven and seven eight cents on the dollar at most, depending on the facts. Mm-hmm. In other words, you have a benefit. It's a clear benefit, and there is an incentive in, in in focusing on that. But it's not a dramatic. It's not a huge in incentive. And depending on the fact, some of, of these trade-offs are becoming serious, and you know, maybe costly. In some cases, you may under the documentation rule, you may have to actually ask the third party to provide you with information. In other words, substantial changes to the commercial uncontrolled transactions or in the marketplace where you may have now to request that evidence. And lacking like that evidence, you, it will put you in, in defense and it will put you in, in, a, in a different spot.
0: So point being is that as companies are that have substantial exports, and I want to get into intangibles and services too, but as companies are doing entering into contracts with third parties, one of the things that they should consider is the documentation that will yep. be needed for them to be able to substantiate this foreign-derived intangible income benefit. And so get that into the legal agreements to make sure that you can get access, that the taxpayer can get access to the information that they need because this is a new world order with this FDII. Right. The commercial people generally, the the business and salespeople would not have thought about they need to get this kind of information no, to the company that, that they're right. going to sell. And then also, how does it impact the economics too? Because it's like, all right, well, you need this additional information. Does that's that become a bargaining chip that does? Right. Right. We had,
2: we had this conversation with uh senior executives from some of the largest you know multinational companies about this very point, and the consensus around the room was you know if this is how these rules get finalized, they will likely cause either a different way of you know, transacting between unrelated right. enterprises or just different flows of information that we never actually saw before. There yeah. was never a reason for that. Like this will actually change commercial behaviors. Yeah.
1: It will create a compliance aspect that, doesn't, that hasn't existed so far. And again, I, I believe comments will probably pop up in the interim that allows... Um, Potentially, these as a safe harbor, you know, to the idea that if you had that hard documentation, that's that's a great plus. But you may still potentially be eligible, lacking those commercial terms that currently are very important. In fact, are determining the, the mm-hmm. ability to to be to to get the deduction to begin with.
0: So maybe we turn to in, intangibles, um, and and then we can spend a little bit, just a few minutes on services. Sure. But. Uh, so I, I, the way I always thought about, you know, FDI, at least going go back to the the Green Book during the Obama administration where we had Republican, you know, Congress and Chairman Camp and really focused on royalties and, and intangible returns. And obviously FDI is not limited to, to that. But w- what are some some practical implications on, on intangibles as a result of these regulations, Alex? Yeah, so with intangibles,
2: the – and by – Sale of intangible, you know, sale is defined broadly. So you can include a license, an actual sale, an installment sale, you know, any transaction by which an intangible right is conveyed. It's transferred. Um, yeah. To establish where IP is used, the regulations tell us we have to look to the place where the revenue is ultimately derived. And uh, it sort of seems kind of intuitive, but it actually raises a lot of questions for companies that, you know, license and make available Intangibles, for example, that are used in the manufacturing. Like not all intangibles are used in actually deriving sales. In fact, there are some types of intangible property that do not result in sales at all. Think about you know a pharmaceutical company that may actually use IP and further development of an indication that never see a light of day in the market. You know, so what if there are no sales? Or what if IP is unlicensed used in the manufacturer, or what if it's used in the internal business operations, you know, to render the services, for example. Mm-hmm. So the rules really don't address that. So that's, that's contrary to the way we always thought of this, both from the you know, trans-pricing perspective, but also just based on the existing case law that tells us how to determine where the intangible is used. Yeah, and so there is
1: partial disparity here with the tangible property, for example, where you have intermediate, manuf- you know, for- foreign manufacturing that would allow you to achieve that benefit. You don't have really foreign further development of IP or other concepts that could be analogized at least from uh, from the tangible products. The other big issue is, again, going back in the, into third parties and not only necessarily immediate third parties because there are licensing of IPs that are for further development or further integration by third parties for customers. Right. And so it's a double-leg step out of the group where you now have to prove hypotheticals, really. It's, it's, it's really a, almost a realistic... Uh, guess at that point Mm -hmm. of what are going to be the uses and and this creates a huge um you know huge question on how confident you are with the analysis that you have and the data that you have that will allow you ultimately to prove that a fraction maybe 100 percent, but depending on the facts (coughs) maybe just a fraction of the income earned by that license or by that sale in fact is eligible for the for the benefit um, in, in, I think we're going to see a lot of questions around intangible property, exactly because the intangible nature of the property is, is kind of squishy, right? So right. It goes, it's difficult to catch, and it's difficult also to prove where the ultimate use and sort of consumer's location is going to be, right?
0: Yeah, and the just the breadth of different fact patterns, to your point, Marco, is. is just it's it's so hard and. Every company, every business defines its intangibles differently. Even within particular businesses and industries, companies will define those types of intangibles and returns differently, even if the businesses are exactly the same. Frankly, right. so it becomes very difficult, I think, to understandably for treasury to try to write rules when it really is such a intangible, <laughs> amorphous yeah, topic.
2: And this is why, I mean, just from a big picture perspective, I think is the audience, I think is probably starting to get at this point, these rules are highly, they're very complicated. They uh, they try to sort of boil the ocean a little bit into a number of fact patterns, but, you know, just the way the modern economy has evolved, it just, I don't think, fits in all the fact patterns that the rules contemplate. So there's a lot of holes that are unanswered, and where where people at first understood the policy behind FDI provision, and they read the statute, and the statute seemed fairly broad and right and favorable, and... A number, of, a number of companies were reading the statute and saying, hmm, I think this you know, makes sense. I fit the patterns. They read the proposed regulation, and they may just draw very different conclusions. So I think there are some industries that are really clear winners, you know, beneficiaries of this. Uh, but I think for most companies it's gotten, you know, fairly nuanced to figure out.
1: Yeah, and the other practical consideration, assuming the proposed regs stay as they are, which is an open question, to be fair, mm-hmm. but... Um, you know, there will be cycles of audit. At the very least, the first initial audit will be an interesting and tough one, I think. But then, potentially, I I think we're going to see a little bit of uh, more stable practice and and understanding and and implementation of these rules in the real-life situations, right? So I I think, you know, we'll have to to navigate a little bit the transition from this very broad language of the statute, these... um, you know, operational language that is coming from the RAGs, which I have to say, you know, it's a, it's a fair attempt still, nevertheless, to to try to put in, into life some of the concepts, and yet, you know, the the challenges of the real world that that are out there, no matter what, and will continue to evolve depending on on how the economy goes and what kind of of fact patterns you're going to face.
0: Yeah, maybe last but not least, then services. Yeah, um, really quick on services.
2: I mean, services my favorite. So. The,
0: the rules introduced four types. We of we, we welcome pointy headed tax nerds. Where <laughs> services of the FDI I just love these Are words, yeah. are, are some, I'm glad you have a favorite. I would have been disappointed otherwise. I was
2: just really impressed by the amount of thought that went into the. Um, and I'm not being sarcastic, right. but um, either so, am I? So that <laughs> the rules uh, they lay out four different categories of services. Proximate services, which are services performed in proximity to the customer. So think of maybe uh, consulting services where a provider travels to location of a customer. The property services, the services performed in proximity to property, but the this um, uh, type of services requires that the provider services also physically manipulates the property. So service has to be in proximity to property and also physically manipulating the property to be considered the property service. Transportation service, which is obvious, and then catch all, which is other or general services. The the property services, um, just by based on reading of the statute and the words in the statute, which talked about a service that's eligible is a service that's either provided to a a foreign person or with respect to property located outside the US, that that reading seemed fairly broad and generous to companies as they read the statute. The requirement that to qualify for property services You need to be in proximity to property and physically manipulate it, really, I think, narrowed down the funnel, you know, that that companies would be able to take advantage of that particular category. And you really think of more kind of like repair services, maybe, you know, where somebody travels abroad to be in proximity to property, physically manipulating it. And then it's interesting when you think of this kind of category of services and also compare it to the foreign branch income, right? And you kind of need to thread the needle a little bit where... Services are performed outside the U.S. in proximity to property while physically manipulating it, but not so much of that as to create a nexus in the permanent establishment that gives rise to maybe foreign branch income, which is not eligible at all for FDI. So it's a bit of an interesting dynamic there. And then for for the catch-all, for the general services, the use is going to be determined based on where the recipient of services is. And then in the context of business-to-business services, the regulations tell you that to determine you kind of look through the recipient to where the services actually provide economic benefit to the recipient's operations. So here's another example where you're providing services to a third party, say a foreign customer, but that foreign customer may be a a foreign multinational, which has operations around the world, including in the U.S. You somehow need to ascertain that none of those services would be also somehow benefited in the U.S. If yes, they need to carve out, quantify, that portion of the services income and sort of back it out of your calculation. Yeah. Well, so, so
0: I think, I think that's a, that's a good, a great summary from, from a services perspective, maybe here in, in closing, mm-hmm. we'll just ask you guys for, you know, tips, tricks, advice. I, I think maybe I'll start and then let you guys, maybe Marco, and then, sure. then Alex, you give closing. I think my, my first advice, and this is something that we've been, I think, very consistent with, all the various reg packages for taxpayers is get, please get involved in the process. And as we've talked uh, to former members of Congress and 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 Treasuries and even members you know former members of the US Treasury Department, PAM, otherwise, that they are looking for it, it for, for comments input. and yeah. input. Absolutely. And so that would be my first piece of advice. But but Marco, what other words of wisdom do you have for our listeners on 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 FITI? On FITI,
1: I think first you know, we haven't talked about 2018, but 2018 is a year where those these proposed regs are not applied. So do some reasonable analysis and actually the proposed regs talk about it. So in, in that sense, thinking about the urgency, uh, 2018 is a little bit of an odd year, but it's an, op- an opportunity for everyone to, you know, go through the economics and, and the conceptual aspect that may not be subject to the proposed regs. And then work uh, through some of the specific issues, but I think the expectation is there will not necessarily be a full benefit, uh, and by that meaning it's going to be hard to prove that 100% right. of the gross income is, you know, eligible, but there may be good amount of return in the investing uh, resources and time in figuring out the right footprint uh, as it's going to be effectively the way Going forward, that for many years or for a number of years, we'll we we'll expect the benefit will re- be realized. So,
0: yeah, this is a whole new work stream for for, for taxpayers, right. but but there's a lot on the table as far as potential tax Very savings, much so. and so starting and, and, early and in to some
1: it. extent, just to be clear, I mean, it sounds like this is it's extra work, and it's but it's really converging because of the interdependencies with other work streams. You may already have to do a lot of work, factually, for example, to go through the expenses on the type of uh, activities that are happening for other reasons, for guilty, for 59 CAPE, for other stuff, that at this point you may want to, um, you know, c- complement that work stream with an activity that includes FTI analysis so that you're effectively taking advantage of other work streams and, you know, don't come up with a new completely um, separate uh, effort that really it's not required. It's required to be holistically taken from, from you know, from the overall perspective.
0: Good advice. Any last words of wisdom from you, Alex?
2: Maybe the top ones in my mind are, while this provision can be very beneficial to companies, it's highly nuanced. And it's turned out to be even more nuanced and complicated, as we thought, just by reading this statute.
0: Constant theme with the TCGA,
2: yes. I think. Yeah. So modeling, like quantitative modeling, I think is going to be really fundamental to this because it's limited by U.S. taxable income. You have to factor in expense apportionment. So even even before we are having a serious conversation around fact patterns and whether to make certain changes in the way we contract or think about exports, just fundamentally understanding numerically, you know, can what we is the derive, size? Can we even drive the benefit? Just and what's the, the size of the price? And the attributes, yeah. right? Yeah. And then it's highly nuanced analysis. I think the, the administrative requirements and the diligence needed to satisfy the various prongs of no has a reason to now and then documentation administrative requirements are going to be fairly substantial. Um, if you combine this with, you know, just open questions about the, the foreign non-U.S. response to FDI, um, we're already seeing some of that like in countries like Germany, for right. example as well as just some open questions about, you know, longevity and kind of legislative political environment. I, I think there'll be more companies trying to understand how this provision fits their existing business and try to take, you know, most advantage they can under the law. I don't think many companies will be making bold moves until some of that uncertainty shakes out.
0: Well, we'll have to leave that as the subject for another cross-border tax talks. But the WTO and non-U.S. implications of this provision is a whole nother topic. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Alex and Marco, for shedding some light on an incredibly complex topic I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.